How do you recognize a shepherd? How do you tell when you're dealing with a 100% authentic shepherd? What are the telltale signs of his profession? Sometimes you think of images of, of someone in robes and someone holding one of those shepherd staves, you know, one of those crooks. And, and, uh, and that's a good sign that you're dealing with a real shepherd. But anybody can buy those. You can, you've got a bathrobe at home. You can, you can buy a shepherd's hook. And, you know, come Christmas time, you'll see a lot of people dressed like that. And they're just part of a Christmas pageant. They're not real shepherds. So how do you recognize that you're dealing with a real shepherd? There is one very telling characteristic that will always let you know that you are dealing with a 100% authentic, real shepherd. They smell like sheep. And that's where Lynn Anderson got the title for his book on church leadership called They Smell Like Sheep. Lynn Anderson says, what kind of leadership will effectively lead the church into the morally turbulent 21st century. The same kind of leadership that led it through the morally and politically chaotic 1st century. Shepherding. This is the kind of leadership Jesus used, and this is the kind of leadership that will take the church where He wants it to go. And while the term shepherd produces warm images of love, care, and tenderness, it also describes a form of leadership that is perilously protective dangerous, dirty, and smelly. So when we ask the question, why do we do it like that? Why do we have the kind of church leadership that we have? Why do we have a local body of elders that have been chosen from among our community? Why do we not have a denominational head that oversees our church, that oversees our operations, that gives us direction and leadership? Why are we considered autonomous, self-governed, and why are we called an independent Christian church? I believe the answer is found in a biblical understanding of church leadership. We're going to look at a passage on church leadership today. You're going to find it in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And if you're using those Bibles that we've got there in the pews, it is page 998, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. But before we go there, I want to take you back to the book of Acts, to, to chapter 20, and just read a couple of verses for you. These are Paul's instructions before he left Ephesus. These are the instructions that Paul gave to the Ephesian elders before he left. He says in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 28. He says to the elders, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after My departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. You look at Paul's words there in Ephesians, and you can't help but notice they're shepherding words. He refers to the church as a flock. 
He refers to the elders, leaders, as overseers. And that may not sound like a shepherding word, but the, the specific term for the shepherd that would oversee the flock, that would stay up at night and watch the flock to protect it from wolves and make sure no sheep would, uh, would wander away, that was the overseer. He would oversee the flock. He warns about dangers coming against the church. And again, he uses shepherding terms. He calls those dangers wolves. Paul warns the elders of two coming dangers. Dangers from outside the church and dangers from inside the church with the goal of destroying the church, with the goal of twisting teaching, with the goal of changing the gospel. And the best defense for the church in those days was local leadership. And I believe that the best defense for the church in these days is local leadership. So when Paul writes to his friend Titus, who is on the island of Crete, with the task of establishing the church there, he tells him of the importance of local leadership for the church. And you see, in his, you see that in his instructions for Titus to appoint elders from the community of faith. So we're going to take this passage, Titus 1, 5 through 9. We're going to take it piece by piece. I want to see the intent behind it and the need for us to, to follow it today. Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. I read those words, put what remained into order, and I can't help but think of Connor. I'm not going to look at him. <laughs> I can't help but think of Connor. Before Connor was diagnosed with autism, one of the first things we noticed was he had a habit of lining things up. And he would take his blocks and he would put them all in a line. He would take books and he would put them all in a line, or Legos, put them all in a line. And to this day, if Connor gets a little out of sorts, which happens once in a while, we will walk into the living room and we will find things lined up. And that means that Connor is trying to make order out of his life. Me as a good father, it is my job to interact with my son. And so I will kick the blocks out of order, knock the books out of order, just to get some interaction, just to get him to come back and straighten it up. And then we get a play together that way. I aggravate him and then he plays with me. That's the way it works. But that kind of obsession that my son has is what Paul is talking about for Titus. I have left you there to put the church in order, to set things right, to line out the church. So we can deduce from what Paul says in verse 5 that a church without elders is a church that's out of order. It's a church that is incomplete also a church that's in danger. Paul has those warnings in Acts chapter 20 about the dangers from outside and dangers from inside. And then later in Titus, he talks about the same dangers. He says in verse 10 of chapter 1, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Well, who's going to deal with these people and what are you supposed to do with them? He says in verse 11, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Well, who's going to do that? Well, it's the job of the leaders. And then he says there are those inside the church that stir up trouble. Over in chapter 3, also in verses 10 and 11, he says in chapter 3, as for a person who stirs up division, 
after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Well, who warns them? It's supposed to be the elders, the leaders. So, putting things in order, putting first things first, Paul begins by telling Titus, you need elders, you need leaders, you need shepherds. Five and six, he says, this is why I left you on Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. We're going to go back to that above reproach stuff in just a little bit and spend some more time on it because I, I kind of want to watch my elders squirm a little bit when I'm talking about that. I want to talk about a couple other things first. There's a lot of stuff in those verses that people like to debate. And that's what they do. They debate it. What does it mean for the elder to be the, the husband of one wife? Does that mean that he has to be married? Does that mean that he can never have been divorced? What does it mean to be the husband of one wife? Literally, in the Greek, it says he has to be a one-woman man. That's, that's the term in the Greek. And a lot of churches interpret that in different ways. And, and I think... As an independent church, we have to allow churches to interpret that as they see fit. And, you know, as long as they're holding to it, as long as they're willing to stand on their interpretation, that it's up for debate. We're going to let them kind of do what they, you know, how they feel they can best hold on to that scripture. I know of one church where if an elder's wife dies, if he becomes widowed, he's removed from the eldership. I personally feel like that is a gross misapplication of that term and, and very much not what Paul was trying to say. That's the way that church has chosen to interpret that. We, we debate these things. That his children, his children are not open to rebellion. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Does that mean that he has to have children? Again, that's, that's a matter that we debate. Let me get to what I think Paul's point is, though. Paul's point is that these guys, these leaders, need to be from your community. They need to be your people. They need to be from your community. You need to know your elder. You need to know him. You need to know his family. People in the church ought to be able to answer the question, is this guy married? Who is he married to? What's his family like? What's his, what are his kids like? What are his qualities? What, what kind of a person is this? People in the church ought to be able to answer those questions. They ought to know him because, you see, your elders come from you. They're part of your community. They smell like sheep. They, they, they smell like you. They smell like you guys. You know, sheep don't follow a shepherd because he's got a robe. Sheep don't follow a shepherd because he's got a hooked staff. Sheep follow a shepherd because they know him, because they know the sound of his voice. They know who he is. They know that they can trust him. And in the same way, your elders know you. They know your needs. They know your struggles. They know your potential. They know your gifts. They know your abilities. And that puts, us in a posi- that puts us in a position to bless each other in some wonderful ways and find ourselves held accountable to each other in some wonderful ways and, and to find ourselves challenged to serve in some new ways. It also means that your elders 
know the dangers that come against this church. They know the attacks that come against this church. And they know how best to address the dangers that come against the church. So the biblical model for leadership is one of men appointed from the community itself. It's not just about where they come from. It's about who they are. And you see that in Paul's instruction here also, that the elders, the leaders, are to be men of godly character. I feel like I need to back up and explain something first. Have a little aside here. Maybe it's a little bit of an assumption. But some of you are probably wondering, Brett, why just men? Why are you talking about men as elders? Why is it just men? Why aren't there women elders? Because I know of churches where there are women elders, where there are women in leadership positions. And, and why aren't we talking about women elders? Isn't, isn't that sexist of you? Isn't that misogynistic? Isn't that backwards? Do women have no role in the church? And let me say this. Absolutely, women have a role in the church. Absolutely, they do. And, and women have an amazing role in the church. Rather, though, when we address, when Paul addresses male leadership in the church, he doesn't go back to society and say, well, obviously men are in charge. Paul goes back to creation, and he talks about Adam and Eve. And he talks about the roles that we were created to fulfill, both of us equal, both of us fulfilling important roles. But he talks about Adam as the head, and he talks about the male leadership in the church in the same way. There are roles and responsibility that God created us to fill. Now, there's, there's two challenges for us here, two very important challenges. The first challenge is this. We really need to come to a better understanding of the women's role in the church, okay? We absolutely need to, need to spend more time understanding that. There's things that, that we don't do that we ought to be doing. You know, there's these things that women ought to be able to do and, and that we ought to encourage women to do, and we ought to, we ought to be learning from them in many ways. You look through Scripture, and let me tell you, the, the Bible, New Testament especially, elevates the role of women to a place that they had never known before. Prior to the New Testament, women, you, you were property, okay? You, you've seen it, you've felt it, you've heard this. But here's something that they, a lot of people don't tell you. With the New Testament, with Jesus, suddenly women are equals. What does Paul say in Galatians? There is neither, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. That was radical. No one knew that. No one believed that. Women were now considered equal. They, they were on the same plane when it comes to salvation. We have the story in the Bible. We have story after story in the Bible of a husband and wife team, Priscilla and Aquila, right? You've heard of them? Why is Priscilla listed first? Well, ladies first, right? No. That culture didn't do ladies first. You walked behind the man. Priscilla is listed first because she's the more important teacher of that team. She was listed first the way that Barnabas and Saul becomes Paul and Barnabas because Paul became more important. Priscilla was the more important teacher of those two. So we really need to spend some time understanding the role of women and, and just maybe doing some repenting in that. And here's the second thing we need to do. Men, guys, some of you need to step up your game. Some of you need to step up your game at home and at church 
you need to stop just checking out and not doing anything. God created you to lead. I will go as far to say, if you're a man and you are not serving, you are not leading, you are not being the man that God has called you to be. You need to step it up. You need to serve. You need to lead. You need to be the man that God has called you to be. Now, I want to also say this. If you disagree with anything that I've just said, it's not my problem because I asked my wife if it was okay. And I ran this part by her first. And she was like, yeah, you let him have it. So blame her. It's not my fault. God calls men of godly character and leadership. He says in verses 7 and 8, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Two times in this passage, he talks about men being above reproach. Two times he talks about men being above reproach. Do you think that's important? Do you think that's important? If he mentions it twice, yes, it's very important. Some of your translations, instead of saying above reproach, some of your translations say that an elder must be blameless. An elder must be well thought of. An elder must be above suspicion. And I'll say this, every other quality listed in these verses hinges upon an elder being above reproach. For the overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, but a, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain. All of that hinges on him being above reproach. It means they're Teflon. When something comes against their character, it doesn't stick. Throw anything up against them, it's not going to stick. It doesn't stick to their character. It doesn't stick because you know them. It doesn't stick because you live with them. You're in fellowship with them. It doesn't stick because they smell like sheep. <laughs> because they're one of you. It's easy to look at those negative qualities in verse 7. And, and I've preached this before, and I know I've hammered those negative qualities. And boy, we can really get into those because it's, it's a lot of fun to talk about the negatives. It's a lot of fun to say, yeah, they don't do that right. You know, put that on, make a checklist out of that, and I'm just going to tell you who's doing it wrong. I don't want you to miss the positives in verse 8. Verse 8 says that the elder needs to be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And the two I really want you to look at, hospitable and a lover of good. The word hospitable literally means that he is a lover of strangers. That's what hospitable means. That you love strangers. He knows the importance of treating guests well. And then there's that idea of lover of good. And, and I shared this with my Sunday school class today. Um, and let me talk to the guys here for a second, because I don't know how women's brains work. But let me tell you about guys. Um, when a young man finds his fancies turning to thoughts of love, right? And you're suddenly thinking, I, I would like to find a young lady. Um, when that happens, you find yourself suddenly drawn to certain qualities that, that young ladies might have, like sparkling personalities, right? 
Um, beautiful eyes. That's what got me, right? <laughs> you find yourself to, to the point that if you're walking down the street and suddenly you see a sparkling personality walking the other direction, hey, you're drawn to that, right? Right, guys? I'm not the only one, right? Guys, get a agreement? Okay. So when it says an elder is a lover of good, think of it in this term. Good things catch his eye, right? Something good catches his eye. Whether that be good deeds, whether that be good attitudes, whether good works, good intentions maybe even, good people catch the elder's eye. So an elder is to be someone who is known for loving strangers and loving good. And here's what I want you to understand. No one should ever feel like they are not welcome. No one should ever feel like an outsider. And no one should ever feel like they are not appreciated because of the things that they're doing, because of the, the people that they are. The elder, the, the shepherd, is the one who sees the good and draws those people in, who sees the stranger and draws those people in, who's always looking for those good qualities, always looking for that thing that's positive. No one should ever feel like they don't belong or like they are not good enough. We can look at all of those qualities in verses 7 and 8. And I will tell you this, not one of our elders here will tell you that they have them down perfectly. <laughs> not one of these elders will say, that's me! Yeah, I got that one. And I'm glad they don't, because I don't need that kind of arrogance. <laughs> and that's exactly what that would be. These qualities are rare. I have to feel they were probably even more rare on Crete. That's, that's where Titus is, right? He's on the island of Crete. Crete had a certain reputation that continues to this day. What do you call someone from Crete? They're Cretans, right? A person from Crete is a Cretan. We continue to use that word today. Down in verse 12, Paul quotes a Cretan. And he says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. How do you find elders on an island full of liars? On an liar, island full of gluttons? On an island full of lazy beasts? How do you find elders? Somehow, Titus found a group of guys. And if you were a fellow Cretan, <laughs> and someone asked you, what's a Christian like? You could point and say, that right there, that's a Christian. That's what a Christ follower is looks like that's what that guy is he has those qualities he's welcoming he is he, he loves to be hospitable he, he he cares for us he he has all of those qualities he is self-controlled that's the kind of person that they would point to those guys those are christians so the biblical the call for biblical church leadership is men from the community men of godly character and it's a call for men who hold firm to their faith. A couple of weeks ago, I preached about the Bible. I preached and I taught you a couple of phrases that we used to have. No book but the Bible. No creed but Christ. This is our sole authority for all matters of faith and practice. It is the tether 
that connects us to God. It connects us to who we have the potential of being because this book tells us who we can be. It, it connects us to our calling, to what we're called to do. And Paul says the same thing here in verse 9. He says of the elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And the images of your elder, your shepherd, clinging to the Word of God while the winds of this world beat the church up. While the winds of the world are pulling the church in different directions, the elder is clinging to the Word of God to hold us to hold us to the message. He doesn't let go of the Word. He doesn't let go of the message of salvation. He holds tight to protect the church that he loves, the church that he's been called to serve. There's a lot of churches that let go of it. You know that, right? There's a lot of churches that let go of the Bible. And they stop using it as their authority. They've chosen to let go, and instead they kind of wet their fingers. Find out where the wind is blowing morally or in society and which direction society is. And they say, well, let's go that way because that's where people want to go and we want to be good people. We want to we welcome everybody. and let's, let's go that way. Let's just follow the wind and, and go that direction. Society's going this way. Morality has changed and we have to be open and understanding and accepting. So let's go the way morality is going. We have to change with it. If we don't, we're considered narrow-minded. We're considered backwards. We're considered out of touch. There are some people who will say that you are hateful because you believe the things that this book says. You know, the last several weeks, we've seen it in our country. We've seen it in our world. What we see in the Middle East, we've seen it right here with some of the opposition that the church is coming up against. You guys haven't seen a tenth of it. I mean, let me tell you, stuff that I see that's going on in the church, universal, things are happening that just bother me. And, and Steve and I have talked, the elders and I have talked, I, I just, I find myself constrained by the Word of God. I, I find myself tethered to this book, and I'm, I'm constrained by it. I, I choose to believe that this is breathed out, you know? First Timothy chapter 3, verse Verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. I choose to believe that the very breath and life of God is in this and the truth of God is found in these words. What happens if we have believers that, or what happens if we have leaders that don't believe that? What happens if we have leaders that aren't tethered to the Word of God? I'll tell you what happens. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Paul says to Titus, he, your, your shepherd, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The best defense that the church has in this generation or any generation, the very best defense that the church has is local leadership established on the truth of the Word of God. That is God's defense for His church. And I'll tell you, 
the position that we are in as an independent church where we are governed by a local body of elders, it puts us in a much better position to stand on that than a lot of other churches are in. There are churches that are led by denominations where somebody in another city, another state, maybe even another country, tells us how we have to practice our faith. And they they would tell us what we have to believe, what we have to allow, what we can't allow, and how we have to practice our faith. We have no such head. We are governed by a local body of leaders who know us, who know the Word, and are going to hold us to the Word of God. And the truth is, if another Christian church, if another independent Christian church down the road decides to do something different, and people come to us and say, well, well, that church allows this. That church lets us do that. That doesn't matter. It's not our problem. It's not who we are. If, If a Christian college that we support chooses to teach something we disagree with, it's not our problem. It's not, doesn't affect how we do things here. The Word of God constrains us. Your leaders are your leaders. And at their heart, their concern is for this church. I tell you, some of you, some of you come to me worried. Some of you come to me and, and I would almost say you're, you're afraid. Sometimes you come to me and, and you sound panicked. What are we going to do? You say, what are we going to do? The world's changing. People are believing all sorts of things. People are doing all sorts of things. And what are, they gonna, what are we going to do when they come to our church? Are we going to change? What if they sue us because we won't do this? What are they gonna, what'll we do when, when they tell us we have to go along with this? We have to allow this in our church. Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus Christ still Lord? Is he? Jesus Christ still Lord? Do you think Jesus Christ is Lord and God is Creator and Sovereign in the universe? Do you think he's aware of the moral climate in our world? Guys, I have to believe in the sovereignty of God. I I have to believe that God is still sovereign. And I have to believe that if we're facing challenges with morality, with society, God chose you for such a time as this. God chose you to be here at the beginning of the 21st century and to be the church. God chose you to be here right now. We didn't get to be there in the first century. We didn't get to be there in the dark ages. We got to be here now. God chose you to be the church. And what did he choose us to do? Did he choose us so that we could cower and be afraid? Did he choose us so that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church? Absolutely. We have been chosen for this time. We have been equipped for this time. We have been chosen to lead. We have been chosen to stand firm. We have been chosen to stand up and say, we are the church, this is who we are, this is the book we stand on, and we're going to keep doing this. He did not choose us so that we would cower in fear. He chose us so that we would prevail against the gates of hell. One of my favorite scriptures about leadership is in Hebrews 13, verse 17, and I've quoted it many times. I find my heart drawn back to it many times. It's speaking of, of the leaders in the church Hebrews 13, verse 17, speaking of leaders in the church, speaking of your shepherds, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. 
keep watch over your souls. It's that image of the shepherd. Staying up at night, watching his flocks, making sure that no one's running off, making sure that no one's, no one's kind of getting lost, making sure that no wolves are coming in. It literally means that he is losing sleep over you. And I will tell you about Bob, Jim, and Danny. They lose sleep over this church. They care about this church. They literally lose sleep over you. Last weekend, we were in Kansas City. And on Labor Day, we were driving home on 70. It was a long trip, and the car was full. And it was, the trip just kept getting long. The closer we got to home, the longer it was taking to get home. And we were making our way around St. Louis, and, and everybody was asleep but Connor and me, which was good because he was driving. Um, I just let him work the pedals. Uh, so everybody's asleep but me and Connor, and I'm like, I have to stop. I can't keep going. I've got to do something different. I'm tired of looking at trucks. So I suddenly realized that no one in my family had ever been to Alton, Illinois. Now, has anyone ever been to Alton? Anyone been to Alton? I've been to Alton a couple times, right? No one had ever been to Alton, so I said, we're going to stop in Alton, and I'm going to show you some stuff. First place I took them in Alton was to the Piasaw Bird. Have you ever seen the Piasaw Bird? Well, you have now. Right there it is. On a cliff overlooking the Mississippi, there's this painting on the rocks of the Piasaw Bird, and and we pulled up, and Gracie said, what is that? And I started to tell her the legend of the Piasaw bird. I want you to listen to the legend. Keep in mind what the book of Hebrews said. To obey your leaders. Submit to them. Because they keep watch over your souls. They lose sleep over you. Many moons ago, there existed a bird-like creature of such great size he could easily carry off a full-grown deer in his talons. His taste, however, was for human flesh. Hundreds of warriors attempted to destroy the Piasaw, but failed. Whole villages were destroyed, and fear spread throughout the Illini tribe. Oatoga, a chief whose fame extends even beyond the Great Lakes, separated himself from his tribe, fasted in solitude for the space of a whole moon, and prayed to the Great Spirit to protect him and his people. From the Piasaw. He kept watch over their souls. On the last night of his great fast, of his fast, the great spirit appeared to Oatoga in a dream and directed him to select twenty warriors, arm each of them with a bow and poisoned arrow, and conceal them in a designated spot. Another warrior was to stand in open view as the victim for the Piasaw. When the chief awoke in the morning, he told the tribe of his dream. The warriors were quickly selected and placed in ambush. Oatoga offered himself as the victim. Placing himself in open view, he soon saw the Piasaw perched on the bluff, eyeing, eyeing his prey. Oatoga began to, the chant, to chant the death song of a warrior. The Piasaw took to the air and swooped down upon the chief. The Piasaw had just reached his victim when every bow was sprung and every arrow sent sailing into the body of the beast. The Piasaw uttered a fearful scream that echoed down the river and died. Oatoga was safe. The tribe saved. Paul promised fierce wolves would come to devour the flock. 
Jesus promised that they would come to deceive even the elect if that were possible. The call to protect the church is men of God who will stand on the Word, who will stand in the open, who will take care of the flock and hold firm to the Word of God. And also men who know you, men who love you, men who smell like you, men who lose sleep over you. I want to tell you the confidence that I have. There are a lot of things in this world that scare me. There are a lot of things in this world that concern me. There are events I read about. There's things I see on the news. There's things that are frightening and disturbing and unsettling. I tell you this with complete confidence. I don't worry about this church. I don't worry about this church because I trust the men of God that we have to lead it. So I would challenge you to do two things today. Two challenges for you today. First of all, pray for your leaders. Pray for our shepherds. Pray for Danny. Pray for Jim. Pray for Bob. Pray for their wives. Pray for their families. Pray for our leaders. Pray that serving would be a joy for them and not a burden for them because that would not be profitable to any of us. But secondly, guys, I want you to pray about this. Pray for the next generation of leaders. Pray that we don't wear these guys out. Pray that men of God will step up and be the men that God has called them to be. God didn't call you guys. God didn't call you to warm that seat. He didn't call you to warm that seat in your home or in your church. God called you to lead. God called you to serve. Just sitting there, that's not what men do. Men don't just sit. Men are supposed to serve. And I want you to realize this. Our connection to each other, our connection to this church, our connection to our elders, it all begins with a connection to Jesus. Jesus says in John chapter 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And the connection that we offer you here connection of, is a connection of community, a place to belong. It's also a connection of protection, people that will care for you. It begins with a connection to Jesus. Do you know him? Do you follow him? Do you want what he has to offer? And when I say what he has to offer, I'm not just talking about forgiveness. I'm not just talking about eternal life, but a place where you belong today, a place where you'll be cared for, place where people are watching over you, a place where people appreciate the good that they know is in you. That's where we all begin. Let's stand together and sing.